Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus told his followers that they need not be troubled. That they could have certainty even though they were confused at what was happening in their lives and the announcement that the Lord was making to them that he was going to go away. That they could be strong even though they were very much vulnerable at that moment and in the moments that would follow and that they could be content even though they were very needy at that time. So do not be troubled. Why? Because he promised them in John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, that he, the helper, may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. At that moment, those 11 men were very much in need of the help of that holy helper. They needed that aid. And every moment since then, for over 2,000 years, up to this very moment this morning, Jesus' followers still need that help from that holy helper. As sometimes we sing, even in this chapel, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. As you know, over the last couple of months, we've been exploring our great neediness as Jesus' followers and the great help that the Holy Spirit gives to us. And just as a recap of the ground we've covered so far, we've learned and been reminded of the fact that as rebels against God, we need saving. That's what we need. We need saving. And so the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He regenerates us. He makes us new creatures. He makes us born again from above. Well, we need more than that. We need security in and assurance of that very salvation because prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so what does the Holy Spirit do? He comes along and he indwells us and he seals us and he testifies to us that we belong to him. We need truth in a world of lies. And so the Spirit teaches us. We need fellowship with our Savior and with his people, and so the Spirit unifies us. We need to be holy, and so the Spirit sanctifies us. We need guidance and power in this life, and so the Spirit fills us and leads us and prays for us. See, the first century disciples, they needed help in that moment, but so do 21st century disciples. We need help. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Helper, He provides what we need and walks with us through our vulnerability. And today we come to another great need of humanity and how it is that the Holy Spirit meets that great need. And here it is right off the bat. Here's the need that we all have. All people must understand and be reminded of the fact that sin is a big deal. That's our need. Every human being needs to be reminded of that fact that sin is actually a big deal. Why do we need to be reminded of that? Because it's like our superpower as humanity to forget. That's what we do. We, we trivialize that truth. We deny that truth. We mute that truth. We soften that truth. We equivocate on this truth and we explain away this truth. 
Really, humanity will do anything so as to not affirm the truth that sin is a big deal because sin leads to death. Ten times out of ten, it leads to death. Genesis 2, For in the day that you eat from the tree, you will surely die. Romans 5, Through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. Romans 6, For the wages of sin is what church? Death. James 1, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. See, sin, sin is a big deal. It's a very big deal. And all people need to understand to be reminded of that fact because left to ourselves, we will try to ignore that fact. And so the Spirit comes along and helps us. It says, you need to know this and you need to understand this. And the Spirit comes along and convinces humanity that sin is a big deal. That's what we're looking at today, the convincing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, unlike the other ministries we've looked at so far in this series, the Spirit's convincing work is actually available to unbeliever and believer alike. You think about the other ones we've looked at, you know, the sealing ministry, the indwelling ministry, teaching, sanctifying, filling, and leading ministry, those are all reserved for people who belong to God. Those are things that the Holy Spirit does in the people who have been regenerated, who belong to the Lord. But the convincing work of the Holy Spirit, it's more of a common grace. It falls upon everyone. It's available to everyone, saved and unsaved alike. Differently, but still available. And what we'll see today as we go through a couple of texts together is that the Holy Spirit convicts the world and the Holy Spirit corrects the church. This is the convincing work of the Holy Spirit to convict the world and to correct the church. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn with me to John chapter 16 is where we'll start. John chapter 16, and we'll start by looking how, at how the Holy Spirit convicts the world. Now, in this section of John's gospel, you are probably aware, but in the upper room discourse, John 13 through 16, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses this term, the world, in a very specific way. He uses it consistently to refer to those apart from Christ— and that which is opposed to Christ. So as you're making your way to John 16, let me read just a handful of verses to illustrate how John uses the world here, because it's important as we come to our text. First in chapter 14, verse 30, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. That doesn't sound good. The ruler of this world is opposed to Christ. Across the page in chapter 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, speaking to his disciples, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Again, we can see how John is using this term. And just one more in chapter 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, he's speaking about his crucifixion, upcoming, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament as my disciples, but the world will rejoice. So the world is that which is opposed to Christ, those who are against Christ. And with that in mind, we come to chapter 16, our text today, starting at verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here's where we land, verse 8. And he 
when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So according to Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes, and he did come in Acts chapter 2 and is here since then, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world that hates him of three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. They are very much connected, but they are distinct. Conviction, we need to understand, isn't the same as conversion, although it is a necessary step on the road to conversion. We need to be convinced and shown that sin leads to guilt before God. It's hard to be converted, to throw ourselves on a Savior when we aren't sure that we need being saved, right? Why would I do that? I need to be convicted of the fact that I am apart from God, and that's what the Holy Spirit comes to do. The unbelieving world needs to understand the dire circumstances that they are in. And so the Spirit works to show them that, to convince them of that reality. Now, what what does it mean that he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment? Well, if we keep reading the text, Jesus himself actually explains, and so let's take them one at a time. First, he convicts the world concerning sin. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Sin in this text is singular. It's one sin he comes to convict the world of, and it is unbelief in the Son. The Holy Spirit does not come into the world to convict the world of sexual immorality, or idolatry, or pride, or envy, or greed. Those are things that get worked on in sanctification, right? When we actually have the power living in us to kill those sins, the Holy Spirit doesn't go into the world to convict the world of sin like that. It goes into the world to convict the world of one sin, and that is rejection of the Messiah. Unbelief in the Son. That's what he says here, because they do not believe in me. For the Holy Spirit to go into the world and convict the world of greed and envy and smoking and drinking and dancing and going to movies and all that kind of stuff, if that's what the Holy Spirit goes out into the world to convict of, he's basically going out to encourage the world to rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic. This whole ship's going down, but hey, you'll look good going down, right? At least you'll be morally pure, kind of. That's not what the Holy Spirit is about. There's one thing that separates us from God. There's one criteria, there's one condition that must be met for a person to be saved, and that is faith in the Son. Faith in the Son. And so that's what the Spirit goes into the world to convict the world of. By the way, maybe as the church, we should take our cues from the Holy Spirit that unites us. When we have interactions with unbelievers, and maybe they want to drag us into conversations about morality and what's right and wrong, pause, hang on a second. Do we have the same basis for morality at all with people who are unregenerate? No. So maybe we should focus as believers and say, what is the main thing we want to talk about? What do you think about Jesus? You need to come to understand that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead. Until you believe in that, all the rest is kind of moot. We can talk about it, but I'm not going to be dragged into that conversation. The Spirit comes into the world to convict the world of sin, the sin of rejecting Jesus. Now, he doesn't stop there. Second, the Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. Verse 10, And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. So let's stay consistent with the pattern in which he's talking here. He comes to convict the world of their sin, And he's coming, in my view, to convict the world of their righteousness, or pseudo-righteousness, really. 
their fake righteousness. After all, this is exactly what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, right? This was a hallmark of his ministry. He came to show the self-righteousness of the world, the self-righteousness of Israel, the self-righteousness of Israel's leaders. They loved to pray loudly, right? To, to give visibly. They wanted people to see them giving. They wanted to worship outwardly, thinking all of this made them acceptable before God. We are sons of Abraham, right? So we're acceptable. We can stroll into God's presence because we've done the right things. And Jesus comes along and he says, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is so far from me. See, Jesus tried to expose the world of all of its pathetic attempts to manufacture righteousness, to work its way to God's favor. But now he says in verse 10 here, now he's going to the Father, right? So who's going to do that? Who's going to do this job? He's been convicting the world of sin. Well, now here comes the Spirit, and the Spirit's going to take up that mantle. And he's going to come into the world and convict the world of their self-righteousness and the, the pathetic nature of their attempts to make themselves acceptable before God. But there's another side to this as well. Because not only is he going to show the world of the self-righteousness, but he's also going to give them a model of perfect righteousness, isn't he, at the same time? It says he's going to the Father. He's going to die, be resurrected, and ascend to the presence of God Almighty. Well, who can go there except someone who's righteous? Is Jesus righteous? Well, his resurrection and ascension prove this guy is righteous. So not only is the Spirit going into the world to say, you're not righteous, all your attempts are not righteous, but look at that. That's what righteousness looks like. The Spirit's going to go into the world and say, you think you're doing pretty good? You think that, that charity you did, that, that kind word you said, you think that makes you good? Wonderful. Is it that good? Points to the sun. Is that good? If it's not that good, if it's not that righteous, then guess what? You are guilty. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And so the Spirit goes into the world to convict the world of the sin of unbelief and to convict them of their pitiful attempts at self-justification and self-righteousness. That leads us to number three. And that's that the Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment. And this just follows, doesn't it? There's sin, self-righteousness, righteousness, and then judgment. Verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The world set against its creator. Again, remember how John uses the world here. But the world set against its creator stands judged by its creator in the same way that the ruler of this world would be judged at the cross. Manny read it for us earlier in Hebrews chapter 2. But Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we have flesh and blood, since that's true, then he speaks of Jesus. He himself, likewise, also partook of the same. The incarnation. He took on flesh and blood. Why? Why would he do that? Well, it says that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. At the cross, the devil was judged, defeated. The cross of Christ the crucifixion of the spotless Lamb of God, it drew a line in the concrete. It drew a line. And every person must decide on which side of that line they will stand. Do we stand with the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and righteous victor? 
or do we stand with the ruler of this age who is now condemned? Everyone must decide on which line they stand. And the Spirit goes out into this world to convict, to show and convince the world that they've chosen poorly. You're on the wrong side of the line. You stand condemned like the, like the captain of your team. The team you now play for, you are judged. Now, praise God, we don't have to stay on that side of the line, right? Praise God for that, that we were all once on the wrong side of the line, but by his grace, we have brought, been brought to life. But the Spirit goes out into the world to convict the world of sin of unbelief, their self-righteousness, and the judgment under which they now sit. A number of years ago, there was a book making its rounds through Christian circles. You may have read it or heard of it called Love Wins. Some of you may have heard of that book. It's a little dated now, but essentially, the author taught in that book that because of God's overwhelming love for humanity, that in the end, quote, every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or the next. He continues, there will be no eternal conscious torment. God does not pour out wrath, and he certainly does not punish for eternity, because in the end, love wins. This is called universalism. Tragically, the message taught by this author and many others like him is the most unloving thing we could ever tell people. Because love warns. It doesn't just win. It warns people as well. This is a lie from the pit of hell. Thankfully and mercifully, God is far more loving than this terrible book gives credit for. He's loving enough to warn people who hate him. There's a line. You're on the wrong side. Come forth. Come to life. Step over the line by faith in the Son. And he sends his spirit to convict the world, to show and convince rebels of their sin of unbelief in the Son, of the impotent nature of their so-called righteousness, and of the judgment under which they now sit and will remain for eternity unless they heed his warnings. See, we can never measure up to that righteousness. No one in here can. Even as believers, we can't get up to the righteousness of the one who ascended to the presence of the Father and who sits at his right hand right now. I can't get there. You can't get there. But that's why God sent his son to take on flesh. He sent his son to take on flesh and to live the life we're supposed to live, the righteousness of God, and he was killed for it. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you will never be righteous. You will never live up to that standard, but I'll give you some of mine. Because I have an infinite amount, and I will credit it to your account if you would just believe in me. I will put it on your account so it's as though that when God looks at you, he doesn't see the sinful wretch that you are. He sees me. And so God sees us in the righteousness of his son, and then we cross across that line never to go back. He will hold us fast on that side of the line. This is the gospel that the Bible boasts, that it proclaims, that we as the church proclaim there is salvation if you would heed the conviction of the Spirit, that you have sinned and rejected the Son, that all your efforts are as filthy rags like the rest of us, and you stand condemned and will for eternity. So as believers, what do we do with this? Well, we need to pray for unbelievers, don't we? In this way. What a wonderful way to pray. Say, Spirit of God, I know you're at work in this world. Spirit, convict people. Convict the ones I love. Show them the folly of their ways. In fact, you know what? Before we go any further, let's do that together now. Bow with me. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as a family of believers, we come before you with united urgency. 
and united compassion for those we know and love who are yet far from you. We can picture their faces right now in these quiet moments. With one heart, we plead with you, Holy Spirit, convict them by any means necessary. Reveal to them their terrible sin of rejecting your beautiful son. Show them the futility of the righteousness they're trying to collect an unreachable standard of righteousness that's needed. Uncover for them the reality of the eternal judgment under which they now sit. Convince them, our God, of their need for you and help us, your people, be conduits of those truths. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world. It's a wonderful, merciful ministry of the Holy Spirit. But what about us? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have believed in the Son. I don't need to be convicted of my unbelief. I have believed in him. I don't need to be convicted in my self-righteousness so much because I have Jesus' righteousness, and I don't need to be convicted of judgment because I have passed out of judgment never to go back. So how does the Spirit convince the church? Well, as I said at the beginning, he corrects the church. He reminds us of the standard to which we have been called, and he aligns us with that standard by his power. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll go from John 16 to Hebrews chapter 12. This is the Spirit reminding the church that sin is a big deal. It's still a big deal. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, a wonderful passage that is familiar to many of us. The author writes this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What a powerful description of the Christian life. A grueling endurance race, surrounded by previous finishers, lining the streets as we run, saying, you can do it. It can be done. God's grace is sufficient. Look at me. I'm a sinner like you, and I made it. And they're cheering us on. Keep going. Keep running. That's not even to mention the pace car. It's Jesus himself up there. Our eyes locked on him, the author and perfecter, finisher of the faith there that we run after. But let's be honest, racing hurts. You know, and the Christian life is hard. But we need to understand that what makes it even harder than it has to be is the sin we voluntarily carry. That's what he's saying here. The sin we take with us that weighs us down and trips us up. And so the author here says, get rid of it. If you want to run well, Throw off the sin that so easily entangles and run with endurance. Continue on in verse 4. He adds, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So these, these believers, they want to resist sin, and it's been hard for them, not to the point of martyrdom yet, but certainly it's been hard, and he doesn't discount that. Right? It is a hard work to kill sin, but it's worth it. And what the author here does in what follows is he encourages them then to view all the hardships they've experienced, 
and they have experienced trials. But he says, view them through a particular lens. That's where he goes next, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, the fathers, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. See, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into the family of God, aren't we? In fact, Jesus said, pray this way, our Father who are in heaven. And in that relationship, child and father, with a heavenly father and a, and a spiritual child, in that relationship, there is love and safety and comfort and security. But, like any loving father, our heavenly father disciplines us when we err. A parent who never corrects or reproves their children is not a good parent. It's a wicked parent. It's a negligent parent. And our heavenly father is neither of those things. He disciplines those he loves. Why? Because our Father wants us, his children, to run this race well, with endurance and focus and confidence. In fact, he wants us running in such a way that we will one day join the cloud of witnesses, that we will stand there unless the Lord comes and gets us, but we will stand in that cloud testifying to his preserving power and grace. I'm sure you've been to the funeral or memorial service of a saint who finished well, and that testimony is joining the cloud of witnesses, testifying to those of us who still run, saying, it can be done. By God's grace, it can be done. And that's the type of race God wants his children to race. But to do that, we've got to get rid of the sin that trips us up and bogs us down. And sometimes God uses trials and hardships to correct us when we indulge. Why? Because sin is a big deal. And we need to be reminded of that as God's people. If you feel burdened for sin in your life, don't ignore that. Don't stifle that. Don't, don't reject that and push it into the, the, the smallest recesses of your being to, 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 to mute it. Don't do that. Thank God for that uncomfortable correction and respond in repentance. He's looking to correct you. He wants you to throw off that encumbrance and run unhindered. If you're reading the Bible and it offends you. Don't explain it away. Put your ego on the altar and accept the Spirit's rebuke. In fact, should we not expect when we come to the mirror of the Word that it would show us warts and all? We look at this and we say, oh man, didn't see that there before. That's the, that's the Word's job. It shows us where we fall short and it gives us the grace to move forward and the forgiveness and the cleansing to do so with power and confidence. If you hear something on a Sunday morning that pierces your heart, don't shoot the messenger. Not just through the sermon, through the songs, through the breaking of bread, through the prayers offered, through the fellowship had. The Holy Spirit works in the body of Christ to pierce your heart. Accept it. Love that. 
The Lord is reproving you, inviting you to lay aside the encumbrances of pride, self-service, and idolatry. If a brother or sister in Christ calls you out for a sin that they see in your life, shake their hand, give them a hug. Although it might be hard at the time. Because that may be God working through his people by the power of the Spirit to make you a better race runner. And that's what we want to be. As much as we may forget it, sin is a big deal. And God loves us way too much to let us forget. And so he sent his spirit to remind us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and lead us back into fellowship and right worship of himself. It's a beautiful ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict the world and to correct his church. Brothers and sisters, and I'm going to say some things now that is common knowledge to most in here, but we need to be reminded of these things too. The church is not merely a group of people who have been justified by grace through faith in Christ. It is that. It is not less than that, but it is so much more than that. The church is to be a place that is characterized by the communal pursuit of holiness. That is why we exist. Not holiness. Remember, we're not there, and we won't be there. Christ is there, but the pursuit of holiness is to be a a defining characteristic of who we are. This is a place where the people of God, being corrected by the Spirit of God, sitting under the Word of God, are being conformed into the image of the Son of God for the glory of God. That's what this place is about. That's what this people is about. We are not a social club, although we enjoy one another, I hope. We are not a charity group, though we do serve the needy. We do not get to decide what we are supposed to do or or what we are supposed to proclaim or how we are supposed to proclaim it. We don't get to decide those things. We are servants of God, doing God's work God's way, and that includes helping one another mature in Christ. Seeing and killing sin as described by God by the power of the Spirit. He comes to correct the church. I want to read another passage here that describes this in Ephesians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church, a body of Christ like us, and he's encouraging them to not live like the world in which they now exist and serve. He's imploring them, live holy, not like you once operated. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become calloused, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. You see the distinction there? This is what you were. Don't be that anymore. Be different from the world. Live out the new life. Let's be very clear. Too many assemblies today, too many church families today look like the world. 
look indistinguishable from the world. They talk the same, act the same, think the same, and often sin the same. They let the world tell them how to read God's word. They, they question God's leading and scorn the Spirit's correction. And perhaps it's a strategy. Maybe you've heard this. We've got to be like the world to win the world, right? Come alongside the world so that, I mean, they're not going to come to something that's so much different than them. We've got to sidle up and sneak attack the world. On paper, it sounds fine, but it's stupid. And it has never in the history of the church ever, ever worked in the way that God wants us to work. Ever. God's people are to be peculiar. We are supposed to be weird. Some of us are just naturally better at it than others. We are supposed to be offensive in our pursuit of holiness because it makes us smell like life to those who are dying. And as we pursue holiness as a church, and that is our goal, we are not holy. We do not claim to be perfect. Now, that is an attack from the world against us. It's a bunch of hypocrites. Well, not really. We're not claiming to be perfect. We are claiming to love our Lord enough to strive for it under the power of the Spirit. That is the goal. And we love one another enough to help one another do that. And as we do that as a church, as we pursue holiness, heeding the correction of the Spirit, perhaps God will use us to bring conviction to those around us who are far from Christ. Maybe through our witness, the Spirit will convict them of unbelief or their pseudo-righteousness and of divine judgment. Who knows? The Lord can use us. He's used donkeys before. He can use me, right? The church needs to be different than the world. So that when the world hurts, and the people we know and love as they pursue self-righteousness and all the accolades of the world, and they get to the end of themselves, and they say, this has not paid off. All that the world promised, it has left me feeling empty. Where then should I go? And they turn back to the people of God. They don't just find a less cool version of themselves. They find something radically different, something that is life eternally so, and holiness. That's what we want to be, by God's power and for his glory. I close with a, a rather lengthy quote from a preacher from past centuries named Charles Spurgeon. Some of you may have heard of him. Oh, a few people. They're like, yeah, obviously we've heard of him. He says things so well. Here's just one example of that. Believe me, there is no preaching in this world like the preaching of a holy life. It shames me sometimes and weakens me in my testimony for my master when I stand here and remember that some professors of religion are a disgrace, not only to their religion, but, but even to common morality. The people claiming the name of Christ, they, don't, they look exactly like the world, he says, and it shames him. He continues, it makes me feel as though I must speak with bated breath and trembling knees when I remember the damnable hypocrisy of those who thrust themselves into the church of God and by their abominable sins bring disgrace upon the cause of God and eternal destruction upon themselves. But listen to this. He says this. In proportion as a church is holy, in that proportion will its testimony for Christ be powerful. Oh, were the saints immaculate. Our testimony would be like fire among the stubble, like the flaming firebrand in the midst of sheaves of corn. Were the saints of God less like the world, more disinterested, more prayerful, more godlike, the stomps of the armies of Zion would shake the nations, and the day of the victory of Christ would surely dawn. Freely might the church trade her most golden-mouthed preacher if she received in exchange 
people of apostolic life. End quote. Get rid of the golden mouth preacher. If you would give us, Lord, instead, God's people who are sold out for holiness, we will be different for your glory, Lord. That's the kind of church we want to be at Oak Ridge. That's the kind of church we want to be. And I know that's the kind of church you want to belong to. That's the kind of people you want to be. We are a needy people. But we've been given the Holy Spirit who meets those needs. He convicts the world and he corrects the church. We want to heed that correction together. Lord, show us where we err. We're not too proud to admit it. We're not perfect. Our whole life has been a testimony to that. Show us where we err and give us the power and the humility to correct it when you call. Let's ask him to help us do that now. Please bow with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, we thank you that you love us enough to correct us, to help us to see, to hate, and to kill the sin that trips us, prevents our effectiveness, and slows our pace in the race you set before each of us and all of us together. Help us to heed the Spirit's correction. Help us take it seriously. Help us to see the joy and the freedom, the ease that accompanies a life set on holiness, a run with its focus set on your Son, the author and perfecter of faith. Help us, our Father, to be a church family that loves you more than we love our sin, loves your work more than our flesh, loves faithfulness to your word more than ease in this world. Protect us. Purify us, clean us, forgive us, use us, we pray. For your glory and your glory alone. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.